Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Michael McMullen is back. Well, you haven't gone away, actually, but uh, last week mm. I was Milton Keynes with Phil Yates. Um, you no doubt watched a lot of it. Uh, well done, we should say, firstly to Steve Maguire, who came in and trousered not only the first prize, but also the coral bonus, a uh, quarter of a million, plus the high break prize. I mean, you know, he's had worse weeks. Yeah, uh, well, I noticed early on in the week it occurred to me that the final was going to be on Friday the 26th of June. It was also on Friday, the 26th of June, that Denmark won the 1992 European Championship, having famously just been called up at the last minute. It's funny how it happens. You know, we often say, oh, maybe his name's on the trophy, you know, because he's been called up at the last minute. It was the same with Ali Carter at the Masters. But it's not just fate. It, it definitely takes a lot of the pressure off you because it's complete bonus time yeah, before you yeah. even hit the first ball. And that has to help you in, in any situation. Great to see him winning again. Just, uh, you know, when, when we were all thinking as he got closer to winning it, how long has it been since his last ranking title? And then we realised seven years. And yeah. It's not as if he disappeared during that time and was no good anymore. He's been around and been a dangerous opponent and had many good results during that time. So really strange that he didn't win one. And then, of course, you know, this is a tournament where once you've won one match, you're already two matches away from winning the title. The thing is, they're long matches and they're against good players. But I thought it was a strange sort of week because we saw brilliant performances from some players, record-breaking in some cases, and then other matches that were, you know, quite forgettable, including, it has to be said, I think, the final. Yeah, um, yeah. But Maguire overall was the best player and... Well done to him that he, that he's won the title. And, you know, he's looked to me over the years like someone who isn't enjoying it anymore, isn't enjoying being a player, isn't enjoying being out there. I think he's changed that attitude the last couple of years and stopped putting so much pressure on himself. That's why his results have had such an upturn again. And that reached its peak in Milton Keynes. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about Steve Maguire's uh, sort of career in more depth. But just on that, I mean, I spoke to him um, last week and he was saying, and I think it's it is related to the, the you know the lockdown and everything because he was at home in, in Scotland and he said I was sat outside in the garden genuinely wondering when I would play snooker again and and it's interesting the minute something okay you know you can get ground down in any job and, and professional sports no different but the minute something's taken away from you you realise actually how how much you miss it anyway we're going to come back to uh, to Stephen's uh, victory in due course firstly though uh, a couple of emails that I wanted to mention now James James. Uh, 
Cook, I uh, read out his email last week. He's in America, and his email actually, he says, I'm loving my status as your US correspondent. Gives me heroes, gives me hero status with the family. I'll tell you what, they're easily pleased, aren't they? Um, <laughs> um, he said, I'm actually a Brit alien in New York, lately a COVID refugee, travelling cross-country Griswold style with the family dog included. That's a reference to the National Lampoon films, I believe. Um, so that would make him Chevy Chase, effectively. Uh, anyway, on to the point, reboying the bubble. That was last week's podcast. You and Phil mentioned that some players may respond differently without a crowd which is a massive factor probably, not only for the players, but for the TV audience too. The Coral event was amazing standard and seemed strange without applause. So here's my thought. <laughs> Give the commentators an applause button, which they, yeah. bra bra brackets you, as experienced super journalists, press on a good shot. The harder you press, the la longer, louder the applause. Could either be just for TV viewers or actually fed into the arena for the live effect. Well, of course, that happened in um, Escape to Victory, the football film, when when uh, no, no one was applauding the, the German team, so the commentator turns up the, the, the fake applause. Uh, he says, I'm looking forward to the World Championship. I'll probably be in Colorado or Montana by then, <laughs> but, as, but as long as I have a Wi-Fi connection, I'll be watching. And he's also attached a picture of the Great Sand Dunes National Park, which I have to say is a better view than I've got here in Birmingham, UK. But anyway, thank you. Thank you, James. Uh, I d I've got to be honest with you. I don't fancy. Um, firstly, I've got enough to do. Come on. I've got enough to do commentating. But I don't fancy um, pressing buttons for applause. I actually oh. think I, I actually think, you know, I know they put this crowd effects on in football, but I actually think, OK, you, yes, of course, you miss a round of applause if someone knocks in a great ball. And at the end of a tournament as well, when there's no applause, it's weird. But basically, during the week, I just found it was less noticeable than certainly I thought it, it might be. Well, you get used to these things, don't you? Mm. Uh, I have a few things to say there. I mean, the, the, the first thing about it is, you know, with the football, you, you have the option. I've tried both. And, you know, w watching it without the crowd noise, uh, I just I gave up on that after about two minutes. It just felt ridiculous. So, you know, I, I've, I've been having it with the, um, the fake noise all the way along. I can't believe, by the way, you didn't make the connection. You mentioned Chevy Chase, mm. right? And he, of course, was in the Paul Simon video. Oh, yes. uh, and then he said the boy in the bubble. I can't believe he didn't make that connection. This is what, this, stand, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, is yeah, what yeah. this podcast is all about. Yeah. Um, well, I actually, I actually thought this is true because I was very young when that came out, that video that Chevy Chase is in. I thought he was Paul Simon because he was the one miming the words. Yeah. Paul well, so Simon's so in the right, pool. I'd never heard of Paul Simon before that. Yeah. Paul Simon's in the video. I know we're not here to talk about this, but Paul Simon's in the video, but Chevy Chase is miming the words to You Can Call Me Out. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry, what was I talking about? Yeah. Was there a question in there? Or <laughs> the, well, no, you're just saying about the crowd noise. I, I think I think snooker, because snoop, we've said this before, snooker relies on silence to build atmosphere. Now, of course, applause, you know, is part of that as well. But let's be honest, 90% of the time in a snooker match, there's no noise anyway. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was wondering about this. Would it be better with fake <clears throat> applause? And I think the football, you definitely need it. But the snooker, maybe not so much. But, but of course, you know, a lot of the programs you see on TV with the clapping and laughing and everything, it's all dubbed on. A lot of them don't even have yeah. anything yeah. there at all. So I don't know. It might seem a little too fake with the snooker. I was I, I could have done with some can laughter for my play in Edinburgh. But anyway, that's another story. Um, yeah. And also, don't don't give the button to me because the power would go to my head. I would I'd just be pressing it all the time at inappropriate moments. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you, you I mean, you've been such a curmudgeon. You'd probably go through a whole someone to make a one four seven and you just wouldn't press it out of spite. <laughs> a little harsh. Um, OK. But of course, James uh, being our US correspondent, of course, uh, there's some sad news for America just last week. Tom Collins who's a multi 
American champion passed away. Yeah, he was someone who, you know, back in the days when the World Amateur Championship was a much bigger deal than it is now, he was someone who always seemed to feature in it. And, you know, he, he was never going to win it or anything like that, but he seemed to be one of these guys who could play a bit, but just not not quite enough. But uh, I always wondered, actually, why Collins was spelt with a K. Turns out it wasn't actually his real surname at all. I think it was some sort of Polish uh, background mm-hmm. name or something like that, and it had just been anglicised to Collins, but they, they kept the K at the start of it. So he's someone who people who were, were you know keeping an eye on the amateur game 20 or 30 years ago would be very familiar with, but uh, sadly passed away uh, just last week. <laughs> Okay, well, it wouldn't be the podcast without a contribution from Dave Tyndall, um, our friend who's, uh, in previous episodes, uh, you will remember he played the 1982 World Championship uh, on his own table, uh, and he was won by Steve Davis. Now, last week, we had an email from Joe Johnston, that's Joe Johnston, Mm -hmm. and and he told us about the time that he essentially uh, created an entirely fictional circuit uh, with results and matches and people winning tournaments, and he kept a little diary, which we talked about last week. And uh, needless to say, this has struck a chord with Dave. He said that on a similar subject, I dug out some old diaries last week. From 1982 to 1986, I used to get a pot black diary. Anyone remember these? I have to say I don't. And would would record best breaks and other sports and snooker news. But the 1986 one also, (laughs) this is quite funny, the 1986 one also had these strange little letter sequences, such as SLI. A-K-S. This was basically code for how the teenage me was getting on with the ladies. For example, <laughs> for, for example, S would be smile, while more commonly sequences such as I-M-A would be ignored me again. I went, for the, <laughs> I went for the code option in case anyone read them and burst out laughing at my complete ineptness, just as you did there, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, to get to the point, he said, my attempts at chatting at girls don't seem to have started in 1982, so the 1982 diary is full of snooker scores. He sent me a screen grab. It's and it's of his first trip to the, the Crucible. He said, living in remote Cumbria, me and my dad and his friend had to get three trains to get us from Whitehaven to Sheffield. It took us ages to get there. The match we saw was Rex Williams versus Doug Mountjoy. And due to train times and their incredibly slow play, we managed to take in just one and a half frames before having to go again. And yes, I love the whole experience. However, if you note my diary entry, two days later, I report I was sick four times and stayed off school. Jimmy White went into a 7-2 lead over Cliff Thorburn. Patsy Fagan beat David Taylor 10-9. I don't think it takes a conspiracy theorist to conclude that due to feeling shortchanged by my crucible trip, I made myself sick so I could stay off school and watch more snooker. Now, Dave has sent me uh, some screen grabs of his diary, which is very, um, very nicely kept. And he's basically each day he fills in what happened uh, at the snooker that day. So, for example, I'm just looking at here. We've got uh, May the 4th, 1982. Terry Griffiths knocked out of the World Championship by Willie Thorne. Beat Dad 57-15 at snooker. I'm guessing that was one. I'm guessing that was one frame. Had had breaks of 32 and 29 against someone. Matthew is that? His best break 44. Anyway, I, without sort of without sort of going down a rabbit hole of, of his uh, personal life, uh, it's interesting. I think obviously now, if he was a kid now, he'd be documenting this somewhere on, on Facebook or somewhere like that. But uh, it's kind of almost like another age, isn't it, where people kept diaries. And anyone else who has kept them, I'd, I'd love to read them out because it sounds, particularly teenage diaries, they're always kind of intriguing, aren't they? So anyone else who's kept a sort of snooker diary and wants to share them, well, let us know. I have to say, I mean, you add it all up. I cannot understand for the life of me how someone who kept a diary of the breaks he made in snooker matches against his dad and who now buys or makes massive cardboard cutouts of Alan Weeks <laughs> wasn't faring well with the ladies in 1982. <laughs> it's such a mystery, the whole thing. Yeah, it sounds like a catch. Um, 
hopefully things have changed for you, Dave, over the years. Anyway, uh, so I'm sure we'll hear from Dave again next week. And But anyone else, as I say, wants to share their snooker diaries, if, if they have any, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com is our email address, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. And not that this is thrown together at the last minute, but, uh, ah, yes, so Scott McCarter writes... Uh, I wanted to ask your opinion on how the online snooker world has enhanced the game. I know that on episode 33, that seems a long time ago, uh, you spoke to Ron Florax of Q-Tracker. I did indeed. While stats used more in broadcasting now than they were 30 years ago, Clive Everton was the first to use information like head-to-head records in commentary. Why was no one using them 30-odd years ago? I know the web makes it easy, but surely in the game's heyday in the 80s, someone would have had some sort of records list. Well, <laughs> you say that. I mean, I'm not so sure. I mean, John D, who, who passed away last year, he, he did keep records. But the, the sort of that wasn't the TV style in those days. I mean, there's actually on on YouTube uh, there's footage of Steve Davis in 1988 at the International in Stoke. He, he's the first player to make three centuries in a row. Yeah. And and the comment I think it was John Pullman was commentating, and he clearly didn't know for sure. He actually was saying, "Well, I think this is a record." He didn't actually know. Now these days, you know, we have a lot of information that, as you say, is available. On places like Q Tracker, things that we keep ourselves, uh, that we prepare, um, like we had the record centuries last week in, in a best of 17 um, match between uh, Robertson and Maguire. It, it just wasn't the style in, in the 80s. There was no sort of statistical um, stuff going on at all, really. There wasn't, you didn't see head to heads particularly before matches. It just wasn't the style. But, but think times have changed. And I would say, personally, for the better, because I think it, it's, it makes it more interesting to know these things. And it was harder to pass that information around as well. You know, you yeah. couldn't, if, if you're sitting in the commentary box now and you're thinking about a stat, you can text someone in the press room or something and they'll text you back. There's none of that in those days. But I think it was mostly just because it was, as you say, a completely different style. I mean, they didn't say much at all, let alone getting into, uh, you know, big statistics. And I guess no one had ever really thought of it in that way. And I think it was really only in later years when the likes of Phil and yourself started doing commentary that, it even became a thing. I think the previous generation of commentators it never even really have occurred to them to get too much into that kind of thing. No, it just, as you say, times have, times have changed. Um, no doubt, uh, of course, we've got the Crucible Almanac now, which uh, is absolutely rammed with, with stats. And the World Championship, now this podcast is going to be released on the 1st of July. So we're actually able to say the World Championship is this month because it starts on, well, the qualifying is in the middle of the month, but then it starts at the Crucible July the 31st. Um, it's been announced through the Chinese press that there's around about 10 Chinese players who have chosen not to travel over the qualifiers. Ding Junhui is coming. Obviously, he's not going to qualify. He's going to be seeded through to the Crucible. Uh, but there's around about 10. There's a couple of Hong Kong players as well, Marco Fu and On Yi, the, the ladies' uh, player. Um, there may be others as well who decide not to come. It's worth saying, though, you know, it's a great shame, this, because it's a world championship. It's a global event. But it is their choice. It's obviously a very complicated situation at the moment. A lot of work has gone into trying to get them over here. I read a thing yesterday, actually. I've not sort of been on social media this week, but I saw something Mark Allen uh, put up there. He put this sort of almost like a statement out. He said he said people demanding to have the world championship cancelled or, or demands to get the world championship cancelled are, in his words, laughable. Um, I don't exactly know who's been saying what, but he's right when he says that. They are laughable. Uh, you know, pe- the, thing, the thing is, generally speaking, people have no idea about how professional sport actually works commercially. If the World Championship was cancelled, WST would forfeit the broadcasting rights fees. And that would mean massive financial upheaval. The FA, I noticed this week, were laying off staff because mm. of lost revenue. Lost revenue. Now, you think of a governing body as being, particularly in football, as being awash with money. Not necessarily the case. And I'm sure in snooker, 
people would also lose their jobs. Prize money would go down. There'd be fewer tournaments because of depleted financial reserves if they have to hand back these broadcasting fees. So that's part of it, the financial aspect. But apart from all of that, cancelling the tournament makes absolutely no practical sense at all unless there's a change in the public health situation. I know it's harder for non-British players. I've said this a number of times already on the podcast. But this is a very specific situation. There's a global pandemic and people have to make their own minds up whether they want to come or not, whether they think it's safe or not. The bottom line is, as far as I see it, snooker should rise to the problem, not shrink from it. We've already proved we can stage events safely. The World Championship absolutely should go ahead. Absolutely it should go ahead. And I don't understand why there's this sort of tendency to just dwell on the negatives. You know, what does that achieve exactly? What, why would why would cancelling the World Championship make any snooker fan happy? I don't understand that. It's 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 not about that. I mean, it's just it's the whole social media world. It's just a cesspit of bitterness and you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But it's it's true. I, I mean, you're talking about people you know who don't understand how professional sport works, and of course they don't. And it's just full of people who don't understand anything. And you know, what what what? Why would it be better not to have the championship? Apart from anything else, pretty much all the potential winners of the world championship are going to be there. I mean, I know Marco Fu isn't playing, but realistically, he wasn't going to win the world championship. So. Pretty much everyone who is a contender will be playing in the World Championship and therefore it's as valid as ever. And look, if ask any of those people if they had the chance of doing something that they're good at with the potential to win half a million pounds at the end of it. Would they want to pass it up? Would they want it to be cancelled? And of course they wouldn't. So let's hope it goes ahead as planned. And I know there's been a bit of a resurgence um, along the way in recent days with COVID. So I mean, it's very uncertain times. I mean, you, you could see a scenario where the qualifiers could be finished and then just suddenly the whole thing could be shut down. So it's still on thin ice now, even at this stage, as to whether or not it goes ahead. But it is looking good. And any snooker fan, anyone who loves watching snooker, why on earth would they want a year without a world championship to watch? I'm so tempted to call this episode Cesspit of Bitterness. It sounds like it should be like an album title or something. That's a a lovely phrase. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, like I said, I haven't actually seen any of these comments because I've not actually been on this week. I've been doing other things, but I just see Mark Allen's comment, which obviously he's reacting to things that people have said to him, maybe on Facebook, I don't know. But anyway, I agree with him. It, It would be laughable to cancel it. And it seems you agree. Now, we will be moving on to an exciting feature about the World Championship later on. But first of all, we're going to go back to Steve Maguire. Um... I guess last week it was a reminder of how good he, he was. I, I thought his attitude was really good all week. As I say, like I, I had a chat with him and, you know, he's genuinely pleased to be back. Contrast that with <laughs> the first two people he beat. Neil Robertson, this was a strange thing. Neil Robertson said conditions were too easy. Judd Trump, who then beat in the next round, said conditions were too difficult. <laughs> now, it's true on the first day, the table did play generously, as they tend to early on the tournament with the new cloth. And there were a lot of centuries, but, you know, Robertson made to himself, he said, oh, I could have made another three. Yeah, you could have, Neil, but you didn't. (laughs) He said, oh, there could have been 11 centuries in the match. Yeah, but there weren't. There were eight. Okay, that is a record. But credit Maguire for how well he played. The next day, I think, was Trump Higgins. And that match wasn't anywhere near as good on the same table. Then we had uh, Selby Yambing Tao. That was okay. That wasn't a great match. wasn't a terrible match. And then, of course, we had... Sean Murphy, Mark Allen, and that was, an, that was an amazing performance by Sean in losing. He had six centuries, didn't really get a chance in the decider. Um, but to, to go back to Maguire, I mean, yeah, seven years, of course, is too long for, for someone like him, particularly how many ranking events there have been since then, because, of course, from about that time, there was an explosion in tournaments. So sort of 15, 16, 17 ranking events a year, and he wasn't winning any of them. Um, he, co- of course, came from a great place to play snooker uh, if you're born as he was in the early 80s, a teenager in the 90s, Scotland. 
practiced with Stephen Hendry when he was a teenager. Um, Hendry, of course, was world number one world champion. So he had a very good grounding. More latter times, of course, he practiced with the likes of John Higgins, Al McManus. It's a great nucleus of players there. And that doesn't guarantee you're going to be a top player. Of course it doesn't. But he had the kind of tools, I guess. And also he he's come, you know, from like a lot of these guys from a sort of typical working class background. He's pretty tough, you know, as a Glaswegian. You need those attributes as well to be a top player at snooker because it's a tough sport. I was just thinking, first of all, about what you were saying there about one player saying the player was too easy and another saying it was too hard. I remember the Irish Masters one year, one player complaining the arena was too cold and one player complaining it was too hot. It was the <laughs> same player within the same match. And it was actually the man we were talking about last week, Willie Horn, uh, yeah. when Steve beaten 9-1 in the final there. But that seven years stat, I mean, what's just as remarkable in its own way, really, is that after he won the UK in 2004, which is probably still the finest moment of his career, he won three ranking events in the next 15 years. Now, considering he won two in 2004... <laughs> That would have seemed unthinkable then because some people might not be old enough to remember it. But when he won that UK in 2004 and played so well, and I think Ronnie said this guy could go on to dominate the game for years and years. And we all thought this was really the start of one of the all time greats emerging. And with the greatest of respect to him, he hasn't gone on to do that. And it's not like he's been winning other tournaments like Masters and Champion of Champions along the way. But go back to what I said earlier. I think he's taken a bit of the pressure off himself and a bit of the expectation. Now, of course, he goes into the World Championship. There is expectation on him again. So does it go back now to where he feels too much pressure and can't perform at his very best? I suppose we'll find out. Yeah, I wonder if, because when he won that UK Championship, he'd been in the final of the British Open. Yeah. Uh, he beat Ronnie, I think, in both tournaments. Um, That's right, yeah. And pretty early on, it was it a was UK Championship where a lot of top players lost early on but it was clear Maguire was going to win it he just was he was just clearly the best player in it and I just wonder if you know his own expectations maybe were a bit like you say now with the World Championship they were kind of heightened and he was put under pressure when you hear Ronnie O'Sullivan who you know at the time was the world champion um, saying that you're going to dominate the game for 10 years. It's hard to shut that out, you know, and it's hard to, and it's also hard to dominate the game for 10 years, by the way, that's the other thing. Um, he, he, you know, he, he had a few sort of close uh, misses in various events. You know, he, he probably should have got to a world final. John Higgins came back yeah. in the last session. Um, he said, you know, in all those years, he was earning a lot of money. He was doing well, but he wasn't sort of hitting the heights. One thing I, I'd say though, uh, about Maguire, he told me a great story. I mentioned Hendry. And, and this this goes into the grounding he had practicing with Hendry. He told me this story. So he would have been like 17, 18, practicing with Stephen Hendry, who, you know, was at the top of the game. And Hendry would bash him up every day, basically. Of course he would. Why wouldn't he? You know, he's world champion, world number one. But there was one day where, Hen- where Maguire eventually beat him in practice. And at the end of the day, Hendry said, OK, we'll play again tomorrow. Be here at nine o'clock. Clearly, even in practice, he didn't like losing Hendry. Um, so, so Maguire said, okay, he said, you know, this, he said, I could see he, you know, he was keyed up for the next day. The one thing I wasn't going to be was late. I, I was going to get there. I wasn't, not only on time, I was get there early. I was going to be ready to play him because clearly he was going to be ready to play me. So they arranged to play at nine o'clock. Maguire got there at quarter two. I'm not going to take any chances, get there at quarter to nine. He said, I got there and Hendry had already set the table up and was sat in a chair holding his, <laughs> holding his cue waited to play him and, of course, went on to bash him up that day. But what, a, what an unbelievable grounding to have, you know, to have that, OK, you, you're picking balls out a lot of the time, but, you, but, you're, but you're learning from the master. It's like sort of, you know, learning the, the violin from Stradivarius or something. 
Yeah, and I remember, you know, that showed in that great year he had in 2004 in that UK. That's certainly my memory of the way he played. Was that Hendry style, that just relentless heavy scoring frame after frame, completely blowing opponents off the table. So it was great uh, grounding for him from that point of view. It can't possibly be any better than that. Much, I guess, as Stephen Hendry himself had had a decade or so earlier that six-night tour of Scotland with Steve Davis. Now, obviously, that was in a more public setting because it was exhibition matches with a crowd. He lost every night, but he said he learned so much from it and it was very much the making of him. So I guess it was the same with Stephen McGuire after that. And, you know, he's not even 40 yet. And you consider some of the things we've seen in recent years and Mark Williams obviously winning the World Championship at the age he was. It's not too late for McGuire now. And he's got to look at it as don't put too much pressure on himself because that's what's cost him in the past. But look on it now as his big opportunity. He's playing so well. He's clearly got a few more years left. He's way back up the rankings again. Let's see what he can do over the next few seasons to build the legacy that really we expected him to build over the last 15 years or so. But that hasn't happened for him. Yeah, I think the one sort of real upshot of this is he's now nicely bedded back, bedded back into the top 16 because it's, it seemed that for a few years he's been in the sort of Joe Perry position of mm. either being just in or just out and always yeah. kind of walking that, that tightrope of am I going to be in the 16 or not for the World Championship? He's number nine. And that ties in nicely to a big feature, <laughs> which could be a shambles. We don't know yet because we've not done it. But OK, so we now know that the top 16 seeds for the, for the Crucible, the World Championship seeds, are set in draw order. And we don't know, of course, who's going to qualify. So this next section will not feature any qualifiers for the obvious reason is we don't know who they're going to be. But we're going to go down the list of all 16 players and we're going to assess their chances based on can they make it to the one table set up or not. Now, here's how it's going to work. So I'm going to read out the name. The first one will be Judd Trump. We'll both say, do we think he's a realistic semi-finalist or not? Now, if you say yes, you get a little tick. If I say yes, I get a little tick and he's through to the next round, Okay, which will be the next discussion. If we both give him a cross, he's out. If you give him a tick and I give him a cross, he goes into a third pile, which is to be discussed later on. I hope people are following this. It'll be be very simple once we start. Um, One thing we should say, of course, you know, is that obviously any player in the top 16 is potentially a semi-finalist and potentially even further in the world championship. But I guess what we're doing here is which ones we see as the most viable ones this year, because you know, yeah. some we fancy more than others. We're not writing anybody off by any means. Oh no. And listen, if, if, there, if there's any players listening, uh, don't be offended. It's just two blokes shooting the breeze on a podcast. It means exactly. it, it's, it's literally meaningless. <laughs> um, but uh, but that should be still... the title of the podcast. This yeah, but... Never mind cesspit of bitterness. But we're, still gonna, but, but we're still going to do it regardless. Okay, so, and of course, we might, we're going to end up probably with more than four, but then hopefully by the end of the podcast, we'll have whittled it down to our four semi-finalists. Now, the caveat, of course, is very often a qualifier does reach the semis. Gary Wilson last year, I mean, Judd Trump, the first time he got to the final was, was a qualifier. Uh, Ding got to the final a few years ago as a qualifier. I understand all of that, but we can only play with the cards we've got, which is the top 16. So at the moment, we're going to do this based on the top 16. So... <laughs> After that preamble, first up, Judd Trump, defending champion, the only player who knows when he's going to be playing that Friday, because Friday now rather than Saturday, Friday yeah. morning and evening. Um, I mean, I think I probably know the answer already, but do you think Judd Trump is a realistic semi-finalist this year? Yeah, definitely. I agree. So that's 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 Judd Trump. Okay, he's through to the next round. Uh, Yan Bingtao, now, of course, he is seeded for the first time and it kind of it's sort of been missed a little bit he can still actually become the youngest world champion um because mm-hmm. he's only 20 20 he's got two more 
uh, attempts at it, assuming that next year's is back in April, May. Uh, he's had a very uh, consistent season, obviously winning the Riga Masters finalists in the Players' Championship. The fact that he was at the Tour Championship tells you how consistent he's been. But the question is, do you see him as a realistic semi-finalist this year? It's funny, uh, when we did this, I'd say two, maybe three years ago, I was actually saying, and he, he wasn't even in the top 16, and I was saying he was a potential winner because he looked that good. Now, actually, having seen more of him, I don't think his best is quite good enough yet, but I think he'll get a lot better. So for this year, I'm going to say no. I think it's interesting because so often with the defending champion, it's about the first day, isn't it? If Trump gets to the yeah. first day, if he gets to the first day, you could see him relaxing into the event, possibly winning it. But of course, if he loses the first day, Yan Bingtao suddenly is in, in theory, an easier section because he's not going to play Judd Trump. And you never know, you know, with the sort of fearlessness of youth and all that, he, he could come through. Having said all that, I agree with you. I think this year, possibly not. So I'm going to give him a little little cross. Remember, this is just a bit of fun. We're not, we're not meaning to uh, have a go at anybody. Uh, Steve Maguire, who we just mentioned, um, what say you about him? I, I'm, I'm just going to veer towards no on that, just because I think Trump is so good. Um, and I think he'll be, I know he's not played so well in the last couple of tournaments. So I'm going to say no from Maguire. And obviously they're in that same section. He'd probably have to beat Trump. So a no for me from Maguire. Yeah, you, but I should say you can pick more than one from each section. Because oh, yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm actually going to agree with you again, which is annoying because we now agreed three times. I think partly because there's the record of players um, following up the, the tournament before the World Championship and doing well at the Crucible is actually not great. I mean, very Mark, low, yeah. Mark, Mark Selby did it a couple of years ago at the China Open. Before that, I think he had to go back to John Higgins at the 98 British Open. Oh, yeah, and the, Hendry did yeah. it in 93, and Steve yeah. maybe did it once or twice, but it's that calibre you're talking about, isn't it? You're talking absolute all-time greats are the ones who've done it. And it might be, now that he's trousered this quarter of a million, it's possible that his intensity actually won't be as strong as you might think. Mm. Look, he's, he played, look, he was deserved winner. He played really well, I thought, during the tournament. But the, his actual crucible records compared to a lot of the other players on this list isn't actually that great. Two semi-finals. Now you could argue with all the confidence he's got, he could uh, do better this year. But for the sake of argument, I'm saying no. Kyron uh, Wilson is next in line. Yeah, I think I, I think we're probably both going to say no on this because he's still a great player, but he's maybe just slipped a little bit over the last while from where he was. Well, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say yes because I think I just think his game suits the world championship um the longer matches the fact that you can go off the ball you know here and there and yeah. still recover recover he's got a lot of fight you know he's been in a couple of semis there already um i'm gonna say yes so he goes into we'll be talking about karen again because we've had a, a no and a yes there uh i'm assuming people people are still listening and haven't haven't just switched this off but anyway we'll continue because we're only just getting started um a man who's won it four times been in the last three finals john higgins yeah, I, I think maybe, you know, the run's going to come to an end of him doing well at the Crucible. So, And also, because there's one player in this quarter of the draw who I really, really fancy. So I'm going to say no for Higgins. It's, it's interesting, um, looking at the, the, you know, we talk about the class of 92. What we mean is Higgins, O'Sullivan and Williams. A couple of seasons ago, they won 10 ranking events between them. Yeah. And, and were superb. All three were superb because Mark won the, won the championship. This season, none of them have won any ranking events. Um, I'm trying to think of any have been in finals. I think Williams was in a final in China. I think um, so long ago now since the season. Yeah, Ronnie was, yeah, Ronnie was in the 
Ronnie was in the final in Belfast because he won the Shanghai. That wasn't a ranking event, but basically they haven't won a ranking event between them. So, you know, it, it's it, it's just a, a reflection of how in a couple of years things have turned around. I'm going to say no to Higgins as well. You know, he he's a great player and has had a great record there, but recent form hasn't been really good. And I, I don't know. I just I just can't just can't see it this year. I may be wrong. I'd be very happy to be wrong. Uh, next up, a man who, of course, he beat in the semis last year, Dave Gilbert. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, Gilbert did well in the Masters. He had a couple of good performances, but then went missing in the semi-final. And the fact that he had that good run and there was a lot of talk about how well he was playing, it kind of masked that he'd really lost his way in ranking events and was having a lot of early defeats around that time. So great run last year, but I'm going to say I don't see him doing it again this time. Well, I'm going to say yes to Dave Gilbert. Um, I think he's got that sort of free-flowing game where he can turn it on. He's, he, he can be a little inconsistent, that's true. But again, in, in a long-form event, you can have bad sessions and you can recover. And yeah, I don't know. I just I think he would have learned from last year as well. He's played in the one table now. He's had that pressure to deal with. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, look, he's recent form, there hasn't been any really because there haven't been any tournaments. But he played actually quite well in the Championship League. He got through the first stage. Um, yeah, I'm going to say yes to Dave. Okay. Um, next up, a player, I guess, in a similar position to Dave, been in a couple of finals, yet to win a title, Jack Lazowski. Yeah, very similar position. Uh, again, I'm going to say no, but again, it's just because there's one player, and I'm sure you know who it is, in this quarter who, whose chances I just really, really like so much. And Jack's head seems to go walk about a bit, and I think it's what's cost him a bit, and is maybe why he hasn't won a tournament yet. And he'll play really, really well, and then just suddenly play some outrageous shot that there's no explanation for whatsoever, or just lose his way for a couple of frames. And I think in the long matches of the Crucible, that's going to find you out. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to agree, but I hope I'm wrong. I think if he had a, a long run at the championship, he would really make a name for himself with the, the wider public who maybe don't follow every tournament um, because he's one of the you know, most attractive players to watch the way he plays the game. Um, but that's, you know, that's all ifs and buts. I, I think his crucible record so far suggests that he, he might struggle to get to the semis. But like I say, I'd love to be wrong. I think I probably know what you're going to say about Mark Allen already. Mm. Yeah. Well, just, I, I just really think I've said it for so long about Mark Allen that he just strikes me as the sort of player who is just going to win a world championship at some point. It's no guarantees, of course, but he's someone who, if he's playing well, it takes very little out of him because he's so fluent and so natural. And so I don't think the fatigue factor is going to come into it towards the end of the championship if he's doing well and if you look at it very often the guy who you should pick for the world championship isn't the guy who's been winning the tournaments coming up to it maybe it's someone who's an established top player who's been doing well in a lot of events throughout the season and of course it's been an extremely long season but you can definitely say that about mark allen and i just feel maybe now he's up to number four it's the highest position he's ever been in going into the world championship in fact it's the highest ranking he's ever had so he won't have to play another top four player until the semi-finals People say his crucible record isn't good. I think sometimes a little too much is made of that. I mean, you look at Barry Hawkins, great crucible record he has. But the great chance he had to win the championship two years ago, he couldn't get the job done. Stuart Bingham, on the other hand, had a pretty poor world championship record and went on to win it with a really, really tough draw along the way. I just feel this might be Alan's time. And that's why I've kind of ruled out everyone else in that section. And uh, I've gone for him. So I'm so obviously then a tick for him. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, except that, and I will also give him a tick, except to say that there must be a reason why he hasn't done better there. Um, is it the is it the venue? Is it the the time it comes in the season? Is he just worn out? I mean, I'll, there must be some reason because he's such a good player. I agree with you. I could see him definitely turning on. He'd actually, personally for me, be one of my favourites this year. 
Um, he's up to his highest ever ranking. You know, he's been very consistent. He, he, he lost weight over the lockdown. He was talking about it quite openly. He um, actually, again, gained a bit of a new perspective. He was volunteering in his local community. He was going, getting yeah. shopping, shopping for some of the older, you know, residents and so on. I think all that's good. It, it, you know, you're going to see real the real world. But he came back pretty sharp, obviously, as we saw last week. Um, yeah, the, the, the time seems right, actually, I think, for him to have a run, of, run at it. So I'm, I'm giving him a tick as well. So, yeah. just, to, just to add to that, I think it's worth picking up on a point you made there that maybe he, it, 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 in a way it contradicts what I was saying, how it doesn't take that much out of him. But I think the season, I think what you alluded to there, that that mm. might burn him out. We know he doesn't like all the travel and everything <laughs> that goes with it. But of course, that isn't really the case this time because, you know, you had the season, then you had a gap of a few months. And he hasn't gone any further than Milton Keynes since then. So that isn't going to be a factor. If that has been a reason in the past for not doing so well, it doesn't really apply this time. OK, we're halfway through. Just to remind everyone what we're doing is we're going down the list of seeds, confirmed seeds for the Crucible, and we are trying to pick out feasible semi-finalists. We're going to end up with more than four, but then we're going to wrestle them down. We're going to wrestle them down to four. So the bottom half of the draw, we kick off with... Still hanging, still hanging on in there at number three, Mark Williams. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I I remember talking to him around about January, and he sounded like he just wanted to pack it in. He didn't want to play anymore. And then I heard recently that during the lockdown, as you were kind of alluding to with something else, it's like he realised how much he missed the game, and now he's talking about going on for a long time. You never really know with Mark that he can look like he's completely lost interest, often because he has lost interest, and then he suddenly regains that focus and looks like the best player in the world again. And look, we saw what happened with him a couple of years ago. But I wonder, you know, having not really been dialed in for a long time, can he really just turn it on again now at the World Championship? It's a very false seeding. I'm sure he'd admit that. He'd be the first to acknowledge he is not the third best player in the world at the moment. He's that high, basically, almost entirely because he won the championship back in 2018. And obviously he'll be losing these points when this tournament is over. So uh, I'm going to say a no for Mark. I'm also going to say no. I think he, he has definitely lost sharpness. I mean, when he won the title two years ago, he had a great season. He was winning lots of tournaments, very sharp. Um, it, it, it's looking increasingly like a last great hurrah. And, and if that's yeah. the case, then, then fantastic. You know, it's such a wonderful, one of the great highlights, I think, of the whole history of the World Championship. I really mean that, him winning that, yeah, him yeah. winning that, particularly beating Higgins in the final and the, and the match, the quality of the match. Um, it's very hard, you know, it's very hard to sort of, as Clive always says, once you climb one mountain to climb another one. And, and he didn't have the same motivation. He hasn't really had it since. Um and as you say, you know, his, his, his position is down to those points, which, of course, are coming off after the World Championship. So he will drop unless he obviously goes on and does well in this year's. I just can't see it, really. I mean, we haven't seen him play since Gibraltar. Um, he did, yeah. wasn't, wasn't in the Championship League, didn't qualify for the Tour Championship. Um, nothing really points to him getting to the semis. He's good enough to on his day. Of course he is. But there's no evidence this year to suggest that he will. Um, next up, the Masters champion, Stuart Bingham, former champion at the Crucible, of course. Yeah, but again, it sort of masks it a bit. You know, the, the Masters this year was the tournament of players who haven't generally been doing that well in, in the ranking events, having a really good week at Alexander Palace, and obviously no one more so than him. And again, as you say, I mean, his, his, his world championship record, he doesn't seem to turn it on there, apart from obviously one year when he turned it on so spectacularly. Um, it doesn't really seem to happen for him. So my, my feeling is probably no. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think... Yeah. I mean, the point is, the year he won it, did anyone tip him to win it? I'm not so sure they did. Um, but he was going in, I think, on the back of a, you know, having played much better through the course of the season. Because even when he won the Masters, you wouldn't say he played brilliantly. 
Yeah, I'm actually gonna so I'm gonna give him a tick, Stuart, because I think I I think experience actually does count for a lot there. And it's an interesting quarter. We'll come on to the other two players, both of them are very interesting to seeds, that is. But bottom line is someone's got to make it through the still section. And he's put it this way, we'll get on to Ronnie in due course, but he beat him, of course. He beat him in the quarterfinals five years ago. So um, yeah, anyway, we'll come on to Ronnie in due course. Ding Junhui, of course, now he, apparently he is playing. That's been sort of sort of reported in China. Um, again, we haven't seen him for a number of months. He didn't come over the Tour Championship. Former finalist, probably the you know on that top of that list, best player currently sort of at the top of the game, not to have won it. Uh, do you do you see him as a semi finalist? Not really. No, no. I'm sort of ruling everyone out here. I'm the, the um, yeah. I mean, I, look, he won the UK, but really, other than that, what has there been from him in recent times? And we know he can be very streaky and unpredictable. That he can just be going through a patch where he can hardly win a match, and then he'll suddenly win a big tournament. So you can never write him off. But I have to just preempt something slightly here. I just kind of have a hunch that O'Sullivan might have his first good world championship for uh, for six years. So on that basis, primarily, I'm going to say no for Ding. I tend to agree, except for the, for this this little element to it. This year, he, he couldn't be accused of going through the motions at the Crucible. He's coming over from China, especially yeah. to play in it, which means you know he will be really keyed up for it. He could have stayed at home. He doesn't need the money, actually. Although, having said that, I mean, he's a wealthy man, I think, Ding, but so much of his money comes from endorsements. And, of course, when you have sponsorship deals, it's kind of uh, – you have to wear – you have to be seen wearing the logos. That's the whole point. Um, so that maybe is part of the reason he's got to come over. But, yeah, I, that's the only thing that makes me think maybe he could do well this year is the fact that, um, you know, he's making a real effort. Having said all that, I'm also going to give him a cross, I'm afraid. Sorry, Ding. Yeah. Uh, so finally in this little quarter, it is the five-times champion, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yeah, I, I just think, I mean, we've talked a lot about how that defeat to Selby in 2014, he's not been the same at the Crucible since. I just have a feeling it might change a bit this time because, again, I mean, Ronnie often talks about how, oh, you know, I don't really like competing and I mean, how many times has he threatened to walk away from the game. But again, having had it taken away from him for so long and having missed out on the Tour Championship and the Players' Championship, he's been away from the game for such a long time, really, with hardly hitting the ball. I know he played in the Championship League and we saw them flash and everything. And hopefully that'll be gone by the time we get to Sheffield. But, you know, he... he the last time, the only time, in fact, he'll ever have gone into the World Championship so fresh was 2013. And look what happened then. So I just have a feeling this might be the time for O'Sullivan to just rediscover his Sheffield edge, maybe with nobody being around. And, you know, he talks a lot about how he doesn't like the whole scene and so many people about, well, it's going to be very different this year at the Crucible. He might be able to just zone in on his game a lot more. And um, I'm not saying I, I, I still don't fancy him actually to win it. But I think this might be the year he starts doing well at the Crucible again. So I'm definitely going to give him a tick. Well, somewhat controversially, I'm not. Um, I th- I just think, and this is the reason, okay, and it's, it's, well, okay, it's partly down to the recent, recent form there hasn't been great. But obviously, you know, I, I'm very fortunate. I get to commentate on Ronnie a lot. And in the last season, the, I've commentated on a number of matches where the pressure has definitely got to him in, sure. ways, in ways that actually I hadn't seen before. There was a match in Wales against Karen Wilson, um, where he essentially fell apart. Now, I think part of the dynamic there was he was trying to get the points to get in the ITV events, the Coral Series. Um, so he was under sort of extra pressure. But even at the Championship League, the first player he played where it was really meaningful was Stuart Bingham. And, you know, he was missing all sorts in that match. Mm. Now, now there's no pressure greater than the Crucible. 
Um, and it just seems to me that eventually, you know, if he's feeling like that, he's going to come unstuck. It's not to say that will happen, you know, before the semis. He may well get through. But balance of probabilities, looking at his record there recently and, and taking all that into account, I'm actually going to say no. Now, of course, you know, he, if he won the World Championship this year, it would not be any sort of shock at all. It's Ronnie O'Sullivan. He can, you know, he can always kind of pull out some some moment of genius. But it's interesting, and I was sort of talking to Phil about this last week. Yes, OK, he doesn't like lots of people being around. But also, when he was at the Championship League, he clearly didn't like that setup either. He made it very clear he didn't, li- he didn't like it. So it depends what mindset you're going to it with. If you're going in with a mindset where you're going to allow things to bother you, they will bother you. It's like, it's like and that's true with anybody, but certainly with him. Um, I just, it's the same principle. It's a slog. That's what he always says about it. It's a slog. And does he want to slog it out in the height of summer, um, indoors, you know, playing snooker? I'm just not so sure. So well, on that the- base... Yeah. Yeah. Well, ju- just to just to wrap up on that, then like, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I feel all the real greats of the game tend to have one last big moment. Stephen Hendry, his last ever tournament, made the 147, got to the quarterfinals. Steve Davis, 2010, got to the quarterfinals, which was unbelievable when you consider how old he was. Uh, we tend to see that with all the greats. They have one last big event. Ray Reardon, I suppose it was you know, getting to the semi-finals in 85. I just feel Ronnie will have one more really good world championship because that is just what the great players do. As for him winning it, no, I don't actually see that happening. Although, again, you know, you can't rule him out. But that's just why I feel at some point along the way, he'll do well once one last time at the Crucible. And I just think for a number of reasons, it's maybe set up for this to be the year that that happens. It may well be, and like I say, it wouldn't be a surprise. But you know, I've, I've I, I, look, I set up this ridiculous thing, and, and I've decided to give him to give him the cross. Now then, the next section is absolutely brutal. The last little yeah. section, and remember, you can you can choose more than one, but the, the, these are all four players, three champions plus someone with a great crucible record. So we start with a three times winner, Mark Selby. Now, of course, I must say, I must say before we start, before. It was cancelled or postponed in April. He was my pick to win it. And and he, he did win the virtual world championship, although, of course, that was nothing to do with him. It was someone else. That probably counts for ranking points these days. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's another matter. Uh, yeah, yeah def- definitely a tick for Selby. Um, you know, got a good bit of form back this season. He didn't like the fact that he had dipped so far from where he had been. And I think he has really regained something from somewhere. I, I wouldn't say that it's, he's regained his focus or his dedication because I don't think he was ever lacking in any of those. Um, and Selby as well, I mean, he, he struggled in the early rounds of tournaments in recent years a lot. He tends to get better as the tournament goes on. Now, of course, at the World Championship, you can struggle a bit. You can have the odd bad session here and there and still get through to the later stages. Uh, but he's, he's such a good World Championship performer. He's so well suited to that format. So definitely a tick for Mark. Completely agree. I'm not going to back down. He's still my tip. Um, just the the last in the course there three times. I think he's always he's always dangerous there. Um, but it's a very tough section just to get it just to get into the semis from this section. Uh, and in the second round, he may well have to play Sean Murphy, which which uh, could be uh, well could be a great match. Yeah, it's got kind of match of the round you know written all over it. Really, that one. Um, you know, you look how well Murphy played last week. It seems strange to say it about someone who didn't. Win a match but you can't say someone can play as well as that and then not regard him as a viable semi-finalist in the next tournament and he's just such a good player Murphy I think maybe he's a little bit underrated actually I think people perhaps don't grasp just what an outstandingly good player he is so I'll definitely give him a tick yeah, me too. And, and he was very unlucky in, in that decider because he didn't get a chance. Mark Allen flew to red. 
and made a good break off. It made 62, effectively a frame winning break. Nothing Murphy could have done in that decider, really. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a, fa- a fantastic uh, performance, indicative of how well he's played all season. He's got his confidence back. He looks, you know, confident again. I'm definitely giving, giving him a tick uh, for this as well. Uh, Barry Hawkins, I, I was just watching uh, on Eurosport, literally this afternoon they were repeating the 2013 final, and it was a reminder of how well Barry played in that match. I mean, there was a massive last frame against Ronnie uh, on the first day, yeah. which went, went went to the black, 9-8 or 10-7, a massive, massive moment in the, in the whole match. He really pushed him. Um, not a lot of form this season, it's got to be said. How do you see Barry's chances? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in a section like that, very very hard to see him given the form he's been in coming through uh you can never rule him out with whereas as far as the crucible is concerned because as you say he has such a history of finding his game there he's gonna be under quite a bit of pressure because obviously he'll be losing a lot of points from having been in the semi-finals back in 2018 and i think that puts his top 16 place in a bit of jeopardy actually i think he has to mm. be a decent run to stay stay in the 16 so look we can't pick everyone in this section we've already picked two i assume we're both picking the last man who we're going to come to so I'll have to say a no for Barry. I'm afraid I agree uh, with you for all the reasons you just stated. So the last player seeded second this year, Neil Roberts, the 2010 champion. Um, I think he's only been in the semis once since then, though. That was uh, 20, 20, 20, 2014. He always seems to... I don't know whether Neil builds it up to maybe too much in his own mind. I mean, he was playing great snooker last season going into it. Whether he just tries too hard, I don't know. There's obviously a reason because, look, he's a fantastic player. Um Definitely, you could see him winning the World Championship again this year. But what are your thoughts for him this year? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you were saying there. I think he said this in the past, that it's really important to him not to go down in history as a one-time only world champion. Because he knows he's good enough to be a multiple world champion. And maybe Selby's success has actually been a bit of a problem for him. Because it would be very similar level. Both came through as top players around the same time. Selby's on three world titles now. Robertson is still only on one and you know, he, he, he's so into legacy and history and all the rest of it and you, know, you remember the pressure it put him under at the Crucible that year it distracted him so much trying to get to that 100 centuries mm. I kind of feel if, if he had won one a second world title a few years ago he might have had a third or even fourth by now but I think that's a bit of a barrier to him trying to get to that second one much like John Higgins who had to wait so mm. long for number two and then number three and four came along in quick succession uh, but again he's rarely if ever gone in as well-placed and as well-equipped as he will this year. So you absolutely have to give him a tick. Yeah, it's interesting. He actually was saying today, um, I read it somewhere, maybe on Twitter somewhere, that because um, he would normally at this time of the year go back to Australia to see his family. Yeah. But has, for obvious reasons, has not done that. So he's sort of sacrificing that. He doesn't get to see them in, in the flesh very often. Um, yeah, I mean, look, he's had a great season. I always kind of think that he's going to um, win it again and then things happen. Sometimes he just gets outplayed. Last year he got dragged into a, a rival battle with John Higgins, um, having played superbly for two rounds. Um, I'm going to give him a tick as well. We'll come back to this section, though, because what we're going to do now is we're going to go, th- we're going to effectively choose one from each section now. We're going to narrow it down. Um, and and ch- ch- <laughs> changing the rules as I go along, I'm going to anyone with two ticks who's the only one with two ticks in that section is through. So in the top section, Judd Trump has two, Corin Wilson one, so Trump is through. Second section, we've got Dave Gilbert with one, Mark Allen with two, so Mark Allen is through. So it's the bottom half really where the fun begins. Uh, The third section, we've got Stuart Bingham and Ronnie O'Sullivan. I've got one tick each, so I've got to choose one of them. Um, It's like like suddenly we're in court trying to make a case, isn't it? Um, So my case for Stuart Bingham, I mean... 
It comes down, I think, to a, a couple of things. I thought he did actually play all right in the Championship League. The thing with Stuart is he's always ready to play. So even though there's been a lockdown, he's always ready to play snooker. It's never a chore for him. He would practice whenever he could, just loves it. And if he could play Ronnie, of course, in the quarterfinals, if it all worked out. And he has beaten him there before. I know that Ronnie's record against him is far superior. Um, it's only a hunch, really. I've got nothing to back it up other than that. Um, and if it, if it absolutely came down to it, and, he put, and it's going to because I've started this whole thing, I think I, I would actually choose Ronnie over him just because of his record. Um, yeah. So I'm with so, you on that. So I guess we're picking O'Sullivan then. That yeah, case. I mean, like I say, like it's strange that we're still – his Ronnie's going to make his 28th appearance in a row at the Crucible, which, by the way, will be a record. And he's still – Hard to figure out. It's, you, he should be the easiest player to work out, really. But he's actually, for me, still the hardest because you, you just do not know. I mean, last year, obviously, lost first round to an amateur, um, but has won it five times. But I think on, on the balance of probability between the two of them, I'm going to go with Ronnie. But the real fun is in, the, is, in the <laughs> is in this last section. So we've got Selby, Murphy and Robertson, three you know authentic potential players, all multi-ranking event winners this season. All past winners of the championship as well. All past winners. It's pretty brutal. Um, I guess of course, Dave, as you would point Mm. out, all triple crowners. (laughs) Don't start that. I've I've actually, I've actually decided to kind of rest that that sort of whole campaign because it was boring. It was boring even myself. I've got to be honest. So, but you brought it up. Um, So I I guess we've got to kind of choose choose one of the three. I mean, I'm going to go for Selby on the basis that I went for Selby originally to win the tournament. So I can't really back down from that. But it's no shock if either of the others beat him. It's no shock at all. And actually, the way Murphy's playing and the confidence he's got, he's certainly scoring better than Mark at the moment. Um, And if it comes to that, you know, he he could potentially blow him away. It's not impossible. But I've got to stick with Mark, haven't I? Yeah, well, I'll I'll go along with that for a couple of reasons. One, that... As we said, Neil sometimes seems to struggle to produce his best at the Crucible. Although I think it's been one or two times he's actually played well and got beaten there. So we have mm. to say that. But whereas Selby just seems to thrive on it. And of course, if we pick him, then we're saying it's a Selby O'Sullivan semi-final. Now, don't mm. tell me that wouldn't be tasty. My mouth is watering already. So the, the semi, so the semi, now of course this is not including any qualifiers because we don't know who's qualified. So in a way, it's almost like it's a lot of uh, a complete waste of time. But these are our these are our semi finalists. Okay, we got Judd Trump against Mark Allen, and we have got Ronnie O'Sullivan against Mark Selby. Now it never ever works out like as you expect. There's always shocks and people go out early and and whatever. But I tell you what, if that was the semi final lineup, then what a world championship that would be. And I suppose the next obvious sort of extension of all this is of those four. So we've got Trump, Allen, O'Sullivan and Selby. Who is going to be champion? Yeah, look, well, you, you're, you're, you've pinned your colours to the Selby yeah. mast. Um, <laughs> and I pinned mine quite firmly, I guess, to the to the Allen mast. I know we've both gone geographically here. You've picked someone from mm. the Midlands of England and I've picked someone from County Antrim. So uh, <laughs> no bias there at all. Um, yeah, look, I, I said all, all I said earlier about Allen. Um, I, I am going to uh, damage his chances greatly because I actually think I'm going to have a little bet on him. And mm. in all the years, I, I usually p- have a bet on someone for the championship. I think the only time I ever actually uh, got it was the year Neil Robertson won it 10 years ago. So, yeah, I, I'm going to pick Alan. I just just have a feeling this, this could be the time. He looks to me like a world champion and so much is pointing in that direction. I don't think he'll ever have a better chance for it that way. I could definitely see him winning it. I think, uh, like you say, all the sort of indicators there that, that everything's in place for him. I guess the, the problem is there's so many other great players and you can play great there and, and get beat. That's a fact. 
Um, but anyway, so let us know what you think. You've listened to us ramble on. Uh, we can only talk about the top 16 at the moment. Uh, snooker scene podcast at mail.com. It did occur to me as well. We don't know who's going to qualify, but who could come through the pack? I mean, Gary Wilson could do it again. I think he's, 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 he's sort of very confident after last year. You could see him causing trouble if he qualified. You've always got the sort of what I would call the old stages like Joe Perry, Ali Carter, you know, people have been around, been at the one table. Um, someone like Scott Donaldson who won the championship league, you know, he's, he's maturing, maturing all the time as a player. Um, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of, of someone sort of out of the pack who could do some damage there? Well, you, you've, named, you've named most of the guys I would have <laughs> named. The one thing I would say, just what I'm thinking about that is, and I, I alluded to this last week, you know, um, I, I think you'll see some surprise players coming through because, OK, I know later on it becomes best of 19, but the early rounds are best of 11. So I think that makes it a little bit more unpredictable in the qualifiers and you'll see some surprise players coming through. Uh, now then, obviously, they've still got to get through a best of 19, but, you know, we, we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, you mentioned Gary Wilson. Again, you know, he, he's he's produced some very, very good performances, actually, this season. He hasn't just gone away on the back of his great run at the Crucible. So he's someone... Graham Doss, I mean, you, you know, mm. his record at the Crucible. And then you consider that he's actually had a pretty good season. Grand Prix went very close to winning. He's someone as well. Uh, beyond that, the Army Tom Ford... You know, he's someone who, again, on his day is very, very good. But could you really see him lasting the pace through a few rounds at the Crucible? So, uh, yeah, hard to really add many names to that. I suppose you are looking at the guys just outside the top 16, you know, like Perry, Carter, guys who have all the experience and are always very dangerous. And then Wilson as well. And, you know, Tep Chai on new, wouldn't it be brilliant to see him mm. go on an extended run at the Crucible? He nearly knocked out Trump before, of course. And, I mean, the way he plays, it'd be brilliant to see him get through a few rounds. Yeah, and one other name I would throw in there, Luca Brussella, of course, who won the Championship yeah. League. Never won a match at the Crucible, but goes in, I guess, in a sort of different, you know, not in the top 16. If he qualified, he would. I think he'd be very dangerous there. Anyway, we'll find out, because the qualifying starts July the 21st, and this year uh, the, there'll be um, one table live on Eurosport. Okay, so we're sort of getting towards the end. Uh, I don't have a snooker book this, this week, but hopefully you do. Yeah, well... Um... I picked out Stephen Hendry's book, actually, mm. because this one only came out, uh, was it about 2018, actually, may even have been as recently as that, and it's actually really good. Um, it, it's There's a huge amount to cover, obviously, because he had a pretty long career, eventful, successful, all the way along, and he manages to cover it all pretty well, actually, along the way. Um, and gives a lot of insight, which you don't always get with autobiographies of players. Now, well, I don't know if you call it an autobiography, because I know we wrote it with, with someone else. But you do actually get a lot of insights. Um, the way that his, uh, his experiences growing up, uh, his upbringing, where he came from, all the rest. But he talks a lot about how that shaped him. He talks about the experiences of starting to play snooker and realising he was good at it. And then he talks a lot, uh, very honestly, actually about his decline, why it happened, and most significantly of all the impact it had on him and, and how much it upset him and where he is now in his life. So it's actually really good. It's, it's um, you know, very, very readable. It's a uh, very uh, enjoyable book. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just called Stephen Hendry, Me on the Table. I noticed last week I listened to the one you did with Phil and you mentioned the cruel game, Gene mm. Rattle. And I, uh, probably about 10 years ago now, uh, I still had never read that, so I went to buy it on eBay. When it arrived, it's got one of those things inside, uh, a, a library sleeve. So someone obviously <laughs> took it out of the library, never brought it back, and then just sold it on eBay. 
And uh, yeah, so um, I was thinking, I was thinking <laughs> a lot when you, uh, when, you, when you mentioned that book last week. But this week we'll go for the Stephen Henry book, Me and the Table, definitely to be recommended. It's very good. Let me ask you one question about the book. Um, what do you make of the top five lists that, that, that are sort of that, that are part of it? Um, yeah, some of them are, are unusual. I, I remember one of them was his top five favourite sweets as a kid. <laughs> uh, so, and then I think one of them was his top five favourite hearts players, something like that. Maybe he's, he's trying to evoke the spirit of high fidelity, the old uh, Nick mm. because that was all about top fives, of course, wasn't it? So, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was something a little different. He told me that um, he because there's an audiobook version for people who like listening to audiobooks, and he found it very difficult doing that because you know you're effective you're effectively a you're reading your own life story which must be weird, but also you're not reading it naturally you're reading it for an audience and if you're not used to that I, I imagine it's quite difficult and you spend basically three days sat there and being told to do lines again and it it doesn't seem the most fun i mean it has to be done but um yeah but uh, if people um want to get the audiobook that's uh, also available i think you know the point i think if you're going to do an autobiography you should be honest it's not i mean so many are i'm not not talking about snooker i'm talking in general so many are just self-serving exercises but actually that the henry one actually i think does get to the root of I think his obsession with not just with snooker, but with winning. And then when it came time that he wasn't winning, how hard he found that. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of, sort of fellow players might not, not have much sympathy because, you know, he beat them a hell of a lot of times. But very interested in sort of inside the mind of a champion. I think in any sport is interesting. And, you know, in our sport, he is, you know, one of one of the absolute greatest champions. So yeah. I can certainly I can certainly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't mention audiobooks without me thinking of that uh, episode of The Simpsons where Homer thinks he's going to die the next day. So he sits down to read the Bible by, read by Larry King on uh, on his headphones. So any, any, any time you mention audiobooks, that's all I can think of. If I ever do read that audiobook with Stephen Henry's, I'll still probably be expecting Larry King to come on at uh, the start of it. But uh, yeah, great book, very honest. So go for that. I feel we've covered a lot of ground with our cultural references this week. Um, okay, so anyway, that's that's it. Um, I, I guess we should also go listen to Graceland by Paul Simon as well. That seems to have featured. Um, Snooker Scene Podcast at mail.com if you have any comeback on what we've discussed. World Championship, tell us your semi finalists. Let us know who you think. Obviously, at the moment, we're playing without the qualifiers, but let us know who you think. Um, any any listeners from anywhere in the world? I noticed we were in the. I do keep an eye on the charts that Apple sent through, and we were doing well in Hungary last week for some reason. So <laughs> I've no idea why, but thank you, all listeners in Hungary and anywhere else. Well, um, I, yeah. you, again, you can't mention Hungary without me mentioning my own personal connection with Hungary. And mm. now this is the most random stat in history: the youngest person ever to appear on Going for Goals, the uh, <laughs> quiz show, was Melinda from Hungary. And the second youngest was me. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to stop there because I don't think I can, I can possibly top that with anything. Um, remind us a bit before, because people that obviously we don't know this story. Remind us very briefly of your how you got on on Going for Gold. Yeah, well, if anyone remembers the show, it was, the, the, it was basically Henry Kelly. all over Europe. Yeah, Henry yeah. Kelly was the presenter. I was on it uh, 25 years ago this year, actually. Yeah. And... There was a like a, you would start off with eight at the start of the week and there would be a winner uh, each day who'd go through to the um, the final at the end of the week, a bit like Championship League actually. And uh, <laughs> so I, I finished second twice. I got to the daily final twice. I was beaten on the Wednesday final by Frank Schroeder, 
ran yeah. a printing works in Munich and was in a Kraftwerk tribute band. <laughs> and then the following day, I was beaten by Alexander Lachko, a travel agent from Vienna. And uh, that, that was sort of my final chance to get through. I think I got beaten 9-0 in one of those mm. finals. It was first to nine. It was around that time as well that Ipswich Town famously got beaten 9-0 by Manchester United. So Ipswich Town actually became my nickname uh, for a little while after that. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite an experience to have at the age of 18. Absolutely, and I have seen footage, and it, it's it's uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. In fact, it's sort of burnt into my retinas. Anyway, I feel we're just drifting into mindless chat here, so um, I think we should end. We should end there. <laughs> we should end there. But thanks for listening, everyone, and we will return all being well next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.